Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, my finest friends. Welcome to the 12th episode of Season 9 of the Tom Petty Project Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Brown. This is the weekly podcast that digs into the entire Tom Petty catalogue, song by song, album by album, and includes conversations with musicians, bands, and people connected with Tom along the way. I've been ruminating pretty much all week on one of uh, Russell Mark's answers to my 10 questions. When I asked him which artist he'd like to hear cover a Tom Petty song, his answer was Taylor Swift as she's the biggest artist on the planet right now, by some distance, and if she covered one of Tom's songs, it would introduce his music to a huge new potential audience. Of course, since the last song episode I released, the wider world has been listening to Love is a Long Road more than ever, because of its use in the trailer for Grand Theft Auto 6, which isn't even due to be released until 2025. The use of that song in the trailer led to a 37,000% increase in streams of that song, and there's a knock-on effect even from there. So on the off chance that you've stumbled across this podcast because of a video game trailer, Welcome. Uh, Season 8, Episode 3 of the Tom Petty Project covered Love is a Long Road, and downloads of that episode have risen by 5,000% in the last week. It's now the fourth most downloaded episode I've released, behind only the trailer and the first two episodes. And this renewed appeal of this song just shows that there's still an audience out there for rock and roll, and that Tom's music can appeal to all ages, and it only takes something like this to make a song or an artist go viral, even if it's just for a short while. And you know what? Even if a few more thousand Pettyheads are born as a result of this latest event, thank goodness for it. Over on social media, last week's track All or Nothing got plenty of love. I was discussing Tom's lyrical style with Bob Reedy in a comment, and J.P. Kaufman made a great point, saying, I think how he constructs the rhymes sometimes are hilarious. Tom can make two things that don't rhyme, rhyme, with the best of them. Sergeant Major and But He Made Ya, one of his top ten, he says. Uh, Up there with Around the Clouds, What Goes Up Must Come Down. And then he's added like DS or Down, because that would rhyme with clouds, wouldn't it? Um, The way he sings them, you can tell he's just making them rhyme. And that's something people either love or hate. Justin Hawkins of The Darkness, um, who has a a YouTube channel called Justin Hawkins Rides Again, uh, is famously not a fan of imperfect rhymes. But Tom always seems to be able to do it so effortlessly, and his southern drawl often allows him to use rhymes that would feel and sound forced in someone else's mouth. JP goes on to say, It just makes my day each time seeing how much you appreciate this album. I always felt it didn't get the love it deserved. So much genius on it, and you're uncovering so much of it in the lyrics and production. Some things that I missed too. Thanks for that. Hey, and thanks right back at you, JP. Uh, It's that ongoing conversation between me and you and everyone else that makes this project more and more fun every day. You know, and I'm only ever throwing ideas out into the world and I hear as many fantastic takes on things I've maybe overlooked or not zoomed in on in an episode. So let's keep that discussion going. The ever insightful Pete Nesta from the Honest and Unmerciful Record Review podcast says, this could be my favorite song on the album. This album for me suffers in the same way as Full Moon Fever. It's so meticulously crafted over the first few songs that it feels robotic and soulless at times. Beginning with The Dark of the Sun, Tom, and most importantly the band, start to shake loose of the constraints placed on them by the stiff arrangements and production, and the mood lifts. A much more enjoyable listen as we are heading into side two, where the momentum carries through. And Pete will be a guest on the show this season, I'm hoping, and it's going to be really interesting to talk to him about the production on Full Moon Fever and Into the Great Wide Open, and even to maybe contrast and compare that to the production on Highway Companion, which was a game produced by Jeff Lynne, but has a very different sonic quality to it. Pete concludes by saying, I know this isn't a popular opinion, but that's the beauty about opinions. None of them are right or wrong, but it does lead to interesting discussions. Also, Kevin, this is yet another excellent podcast, as we've come to expect. And again, from a podcaster and a musical autopsy clinician, who I respect immensely, I can only say thank you so much, Pete. And you know what? Opinions don't need to be popular as long as they're informed, and Pete's opinions are most certainly that. 
you're really into check out the Honest and Unmerciful podcast. If you haven't done that already, I think I've posted about them before or I've posted a link or whatever. Um, it's got the best rating system of any podcast in the world, I guarantee you. Um, and I'll leave a link maybe to the latest episode again covering John Cougar Mellencamp's Scarecrow. It's, it's a great episode. It's music that probably a lot of you will listen to and like, so go check it out. Uh, my associate producer, Paul Roberts, says a real humdinger. The real surprise is how little this was played live. A showcase for Mike's slide guitar prowess, in my opinion, not quite a creme de la creme 10, but a substantial 9.5. And look, who am I to argue with that? The slide guitar in All or Nothing really is an absolute powerhouse performance. And one of those reminders that though Mike is always serving the song, he can also drive it when necessary. Mark Lindsay from the Incredible Sight and Sound program writes, This is a great addition to Tom's lifetime theme of defiance. Won't back down, don't do me like that, refugee and parts of Last DJ as if he were talking to record executives in a battle over increasing album prices by a, a dollar or a crappy record deal where he had to hide his tapes from the label every night after recording in the studio. This lifetime theme may potentially have developed from his poor relationship with his father, but regardless, he did not tolerate nonsense. Also, the guitar riff and the great use of his voice, the abrupt ending, make this a standout track. We have all felt like this at some point, and of course, the master that is Tom Petty can be our muse. And look, I sat down with Mark last week. And I'll be releasing that conversation as a special bonus episode, I think probably early in the new year. I've got to figure out exactly when I want to schedule that yet. Um, and you won't want to miss that one, as Mark has seen Tom somewhere around 40 times, and he had a ton of great stories and insights to tell, as well as breaking down the amazing work that he's doing with the Sight and Sound Initiative, which, again, I'll tell you more about once we get near to that episode. So today's episode looks at the opening track from side two of Into the Great Wide Open, the wonderfully anthemic All the Wrong Reasons. And if you're new to the podcast, I don't include clips from the song in the episode itself to avoid getting into any sort of copyright trouble or treading on the toes of the petty estate. All right, let's get the elephants in the room out of the way right off the top. If you hear a similarity between this song and Free Falling, it's because they're really, really close. Same basic chords in a slightly different order. Uh, the chord progression in Free Falling ends on the major fifth, so the C chord, well, C sus four actually, uh, where this song falls back onto the root F. It's the same kick snare pattern on the drums and a very similar strumming pattern on the acoustic guitar and even a very similar tempo. Free Falling clocks in a little faster at uh, 84 BPM compared to All the Wrong Reasons is 79, but they do sound extremely similar in terms of feel. And at the same time, they don't. It's been a weird one to approach this one because where I'd normally go through section by section and comment on what's changing, what's been added or removed, etc., there's almost no grand movement in this song save for one thing. So I think I'm going to slightly upend the usual format of these episodes and talk about the instrumentation more as a whole, and then dive into the vocals and the lyrics. Like Free Falling, All the Wrong Reasons starts without any percussion or bass. We have a nice, brightly toned rhythm guitar strumming those 16th note phrases. Then we have the lead melody being played on both guitar and bouzouki. If you've never seen a bouzouki before, it's a Greek instrument in the lute family that kind of looks a bit like a really long-necked mandolin. It's a six- or eight-stringed instrument, and I bet Mike Campbell's playing the eight-string version on this song. The strings on a bouzouki are arranged in pairs, which gives it that really bright, jangly tone that you also get from a 12-string guitar. And this is the second time we've heard this instrument on a Heartbreaker song. The first being don't come around here no more. And I'd love to know if that's an instrument that Mike actually owns or owned, and if it's the same one. I'm guessing probably it is. 
And that bazooki is mixed slightly over into the left channel with the guitar playing the same part sitting slightly over to the right, which gives us that gloriously expansive tonal feel to this stringed opening. The intro then repeats with that opening four bars, but with the drums added. And here, you get something I'm not sure I've heard on a Heartbreaker song to this point. Timpani. There's absolutely no mistaking that for a floor tom as it thunders the drums into the full instrumentation. We get those same loose, heavy snare sounds that pervades the rest of the album, but the reverbs dial back a little here and we don't hear it resonate off quite so much. It doesn't sort of decay quite as much. The bass line actually is kind of the coolest part of this song instrumentally, as it's the part that's adding some movement around those root notes, as well as the vocal melody, obviously. I've isolated that part using some AI software, and I'm going to play a little of it so that you can hear how fluid and interesting it is. Where most of the bass lines on Full Moon Fever and this album are very, very straight and very unobtrusive, the bass here is keeping a really nice groove going, biting in some slides and pull-offs. And this playful, cheery part proceeds throughout the entire song. And as I said earlier, the kick snare pattern's exactly the same as free falling, that dum, cha, dum. Same pattern, right? And um, we have a tambourine being shaken throughout the course of instrumental sections. There's not a ton to it, and I'm guessing it would have been something that Stan Lynch likely wouldn't have been overly excited to play, given the rudimentary nature of it and the lack of fills. The only little bits of flair that are added are the timpanies that lead out of the chorus back into the instrumental uh, lead into the verse. There's also some extra snare work in the last chorus where Stan's playing a straight sort of 16th snare fill at the end of each bar starting on the three-hand. And I've pulled that out so you can hear what I mean. And again, this is not an actual master of the drums, so it doesn't sound pristine, but you can hear the part that I'm talking about. Talking to drums and things, I'd be willing to bet that the timpanies in this song were added in later by Jeff Lynne, and I bet it was his idea. Um, and Jeff was actually credited with percussion on this album, in addition to Stan Lynch, so there you go. There's my hot take, because I'm pretty sure that that's Jeff Lynne playing those timpanies. When the first verse comes in, the lead guitar's dropped out, and the electric guitar strumming those 16th notes is replaced by an acoustic, probably a 12-string again. Uh, and there's also a low synth pad playing the, playing the chord changes. So there's really not a ton to talk about here until the chorus. Um, when there's a nice, chunky, overdriven guitar that comes and joins in to play those chord changes. And this is basically all there is to the first two verse-chorus pairs. And we'll talk a little bit about the A and B sections later on, maybe, but after two verse-chorus pairs, there's an eight-bar instrumental break, which is basically just the intro lead guitar bazooki part repeated twice, straight through. No change and no sort of um, adornment or instrumentation added in there. This leads us into the last verse, and to continue the comparison with the free-falling, we get a dynamic change here. In the Full Moon Fever mega hit, we get that marching snare line, um, and here the rhythm section drops out completely, leaving that strummed acoustic guitar, or guitars, probably more than one, uh, and the introduction for the first time of the bazooki into the verse, which is playing some really nice little descending arpeggios and stronger single notes here and there just to accent um, that melody. So again, this changes the mood of the song very subtly for four bars before the second half of the verse leads us back into familiar territory with the full band arrangement. The synths are also playing those lush, sustained chords to pad out the upper end of the frequency range, and it's all very pleasant and all very slick. The chorus is just basically two lines sung over four bars, but the last chorus here adds an additional four bars to make it three lines instead of two before that main guitar bazooki line plays for two bars instead of four, and we end on the root F major, which decays off beautifully. <laughs> ¶¶ 
right, folks, it's time for some petty trivia. Your question from last week was this. In my conversation with John Scott, what did he tell me he crawled around looking for on a hotel floor with a bikini-clad Olivia Newton-John? Was it A, a contact lens, B, a ring, C, an earring, or D, her lucky two-headed quarter? Well, let's go back to John Scott to fill us in on the details. So I said, yeah, go ahead and go. And then all of a sudden I hear her go, ow, before she gets out of the room. And I said, what's wrong? What's wrong? She said, I lost my contact lens. And we had the room had shag carpet. So I'm <laughs> down in the floor looking for a contact lens. And all of a sudden I look up and her butt is right in my face. And I'm going, oh, this is going to be a pretty good job as a promotion. <laughs> but we found we found the we found the uh, contact lens and she went and had a swim. Oh nice. Oh man. A fun job indeed, John. A fun job indeed. Um, in my 10 questions with Russell Mark this past week, we ended up talking about the painfully underappreciated album Echo. And on YouTube, at Steve5674 commented, my favorite Tom Petty album. And he never played any of it in concert after the original Echo tour because it represented the darkest period of his life. Now, while this isn't strictly true, because a small handful of songs were aired in the following years, my question for you is this. According to setlist.fm, Eight of the 15 songs from Echo were never played live. But which track from the album was played the most in concert? Is it A, Echo, B, Free Girl Now, C, Room at the Top, or D, Swinging? Okay, back to the song. So, like I said, it's a tougher one to pull apart, this one, because maybe somewhat unusually for the Heartbreakers, there's very little difference between the sections in this song. But it's a song that really serves to feed that fantastic chorus. Oh, 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 oh. That's, what, that's what we're here for, right? That's what makes this song. In conversations with Tom Petty, Tom tells author Paul Zolo that Ben Montench really likes All the Wrong Reasons. And at first, you'd think that this track should have been a shoo-in as a live performance, but the song was never once aired in public. That chorus part is just tailor-made for crowd participation, you would think. But, as I've already drawn a line between this song and Free Falling, and as you basically have to play that song pretty much every show, Free Falling, putting both of these songs in the set would maybe have been too much of a good thing in Tom's mind, or too much of a similar thing. But wouldn't it have been cool if they'd occasionally made them into a medley and included the oh section toward the end of Free Falling and really got the crowd going? You could have just had the drums playing and Tom conducting the crowd, and it would have sounded great. You know what, maybe I'll suggest this to my previous guest, Petty Theft, or my upcoming guest, The Waiting in Montana, as an idea to try out. I think it would sound fantastic. And you know what, maybe I'll even mock up a little edit to see what people think. Vocally, Tom doesn't stretch at all on this one. He's in that same range that he employs on Into the Great Wide Open. It's a confident, knowing voice that tells a tale of woe. And where he pitches up on Free Falling in the chorus and really belts out those notes, on this song, that dynamic is provided by the fabulous harmonized vocals on that chorus, oh, 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 oh which I'm going to guess are Howie Epstein and Jeff Lynne. It sounds very much like Howie taking the higher notes and Jeff taking the lower. And I'd be curious to know if that is the case, if they sang their parts together to get that intonation exactly right. It's much easier to sing harmonies like that if you can look at the person while you're singing. It just makes the timing easier to get that nice, tight sound that they get in this section of the song. And where this song is incredibly simple, as I've suggested, I think that's to make sure that that chorus section really, really pops. 
It's this euphoric sonic moment in a song that really is about loss and pressure after all. When Paul Zolo asks about the lyrics in conversations with Tom Petty, Tom replies that, I remember writing that one. It was inspired. There was a family that we knew through one of the kids, and they were a very wealthy family with all the trimmings, the big cars and the big house. And suddenly the economy started failing and all their money went. They had to pack up and go. And he goes on to say, I think that was the germ of the idea. That big old house went up for sale. They were on the road by morning because they were gone overnight. Gone. From the top of the world to gone. Tom then goes on to comment that the song was written during the George Bush senior administration and that he felt the country was becoming a kind of cheap place to live, morally speaking. The value system was changing. The culture was becoming more celebrity-driven and empty. So it's easy to see from that mindset where the line, All the Wrong Reasons, was born. Like every track on this album, the lyrics are really, really tight and very well put together. You can really feel that both Full Moon Fever and Into the Great Wide Open are a polar opposite reaction to the looseness of Let Me Up, I've Had Enough in that Tom wanted to be very precise and very measured in the way he wrote on these two albums. Lyrically, we have a three-act structure here that doesn't fall easily into the narrative form of two gunslingers or the more emotional space of the dark of the sun, but lands somewhere in between the two, with both specific woes and more general feelings of impending misfortune um, sort of interwoven. The first verse describes the family which Tom says inspired the idea for the song in the first place. Trouble blew in on a cold, dark wind. It came without no warning. And that big old house went up for sale. They were on the road by morning. And a nice little pettyism there, hey? It came without no warning, which of course is a double negative, which could have been deliberate and, and Tom saying that it was trouble that someone should or maybe could have seen coming, but more likely is using vernacular language that people employ, especially in the South. It also fits the cadence of the music better. And as I've mentioned before, this is often the difference between song lyrics and poetry. In a poem, it would read just as well if it were, it came without any warning or it came without warning. They both work and they both mean the same thing, but neither are exactly how most people phrase things when they're speaking out loud. The second verse seems to be Tom making that observation about the vacuousness of modern culture, which it has to be said seems only to be sliding further and further into self-obsession and celebrity worship as time goes by. While she grew up hard and she grew up fast in the age of television, and she made a vow to have it all, it became her new religion. And I think it's an excellent choice here to have the subject of this verse be female. Because women and girls are often under staggering pressure in the modern world to look a certain way, act a certain way, strive for specific objectives of beauty and instruments of social acceptance. So in these four simple lines, Tom is showing that shallowness without tagging any blame or criticism onto the subject herself. She grew up hard and she grew up fast, remember? That's a great description of a society that encourages kids to become adults long before their time. The last verse then becomes more meditative on this theme. Where the sky begins, the horizon ends, despite the best intentions, and a big old man goes up for sale, he becomes his own invention. So, if we're talking about the family in the first verse, the sky could be the future, and the horizon would be the success they've enjoyed, and where they meet is the collision point that forces their downturn in fortune. If it's talking about the girl in the second verse, the sky would be social expectation, and the horizon is her childhood, receding behind her, never to be seen again. And then we get this enigmatic line, a big old man goes up for sale, which could be, and I think is referencing celebrity itself, and the way that many artists and people who spend their professional lives in the media or in the spotlight become commodities as much or more than they are private individuals. And if that thought carries through then, he becomes his own invention, is the idea that this slide into being a caricature, rather than being an individual character, could be arrested, but at the end of the day, if you follow that path, you do become that parody of yourself, rather than the authentic you. And you can name any number of people in the online world who have fallen prey to this, 
uh, and it's sad in a lot of ways and quite repulsive in others. So the chorus in this song is another one of the ways that Tom adds movement into this deliberately simple arrangement. The pair of lines in each chorus is never the same twice and only one line is repeated at all. And each chorus summarizes or underscores the idea in each verse. The first chorus pair, the days went slow into the changing season, out in the cold for all the wrong reasons, combined with the first verse to describe the family's changing fortunes. The second, down in her soul, it was an act of treason. Down they go for all the wrong reasons, describes the despair of forced conformity and the selling of oneself for acceptance. Down in her soul, it was an act of treason. It's just clinically superb. The last pair paraphrases the first line of the first chorus, but changes the tense. Instead of the days went slow, were brought into the present and the ongoing with the days go slow into the changing season. And then Tom comments on the surrender of integrity by writing bought and sold for all the wrong reasons. That additional third line then underscores all the ideas from the first three verses, all very different circumstances, but all with similar negative outcomes. Down they go for all the wrong reasons. There are again some very big ideas packed into this very simple, almost four minute pop song. But as always though, Tom isn't preaching or judging, he's just observing. As my wonderful guest, Matt Jaffe said during our 10 questions episode, Tom is never didactic. He's not saying that celebrity is bad. He's not judging the family's look or the girl's choices. And importantly, he's not prescribing an antidote or a remedy. He's just making the observation and letting it stand alone. It's up to us, the listener, to decide what we think about the ideas he's presenting. And at the end of the day, despite the downbeat nature of the lyrics, we can all still enjoy singing along with that utterly glorious chorus line. When Paul Zolo tells Tom that he should listen to Benmont's constant badgering him to play the song live, Tom responds, I cracked up when reading Bob Dylan's book. There's a bit in there about Benmont pestering him to play certain songs. God bless him. Benmont keeps the vigil. He keeps us honest. Okay, Pettyheads, that's it for this week. Uh, this is another song that's buried its way deep into my pettiness. My petty consciousness, or I don't know what to call it, uh, since I started writing for this album. It's another track that I kind of overlooked, I think, and not paid too much attention to, but when you really look beyond the simple repetition of the A and B sections of this song, there's lyrically thematic gold to be mined here. And I defy you to listen to this song and not sing, or at least hum to yourself, that chorus refrain. It's catchy, it's melodic, and it's marvellous. I can't quite get this one to the tip top of the pile, but I think that maybe with a little more variety in the instrumentation and possibly some sort of bridge, I could, I could make a case for this song then being on a par with its melodic soulmate, Free Falling. Maybe? I don't know. It's pretty damn close. It's a deep cut, though, that is on all my playlists now and a song that I'd love to actually cover someday. You know what? Maybe I'll talk to my pal Randy about doing something as a Christmas release, if I have time. Um, if I was given half points, this would be an 8.5 but I'm going to leave some room for some of the other Titanic songs that I still have ahead of me and give all the wrong reasons a solid 8 out of 10. The Tom Petty Project is a proud member of the Deep Dive Podcast Network. Go check us out on Twitter at Deep Dive Podnet. I'm sure you'll find something there or someone there that you enjoy listening to. Um, you can also check out my other podcast, Seaside Pod Review, a Queen podcast that I do with my best friend, Randy Woods, um, as well as the Ultimate Catalog Clash that I co-host with the hardest working man in podcasting, Corey Morissette. Don't forget to follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube at The Tom Petty Project and on Twitter at Tom Petty Project. 
Go follow, like, subscribe is applicable, blah, 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 leave a rating, blah, 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 blah. Um, and yeah, and on Spotify as well, because they've got ratings on there now. Um, keep talking to me on social media, and I'll keep reading out your comments, or certainly I'll be sort of responding to them online. Um, and as your weekly reminder, the Tom Petty Project is not affiliated with the Tom Petty Estate in any way. When you're looking for Tom's music, please visit official streaming platforms, or better yet, go to your local independent record seller and go grab some physical media that you can actually own and love and keep. If you're looking for official Tom Petty merchandise, please go to TomPetty.com. Um, there's lots of copies still left of the Mojo Vinyl Repress if you're into vinyl. Super cool. Go pick that up. It sounds better on vinyl than anywhere else. And if you're looking for merchandise for this show, please go to TomPettyProject.com. Don't forget to check out the Tom Petty Nation and Tom Petty Fans Forever groups on Facebook. Um, they're excellent fan communities with lots of wonderful people there who have excellent conversations. Until we meet again next week, keep listening to and sharing Tom's music. Try to be kind. Try to say I love you to someone at least once a day. Stay safe and healthy, and I'll be back with you next week with the second track from side two of Into the Great Wide Open, Too Good to Be True. Bye-bye.